0: Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah Class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 8, an Old Testament survey from Abraham to modern Israel. One of the great, one of the several great Jewish minds stolen from Judah by King Nebuchadnezzar uh, was Daniel. And no doubt, the pious, genuine, upright prophet Daniel helped to paint the Jewish exiles in a good light to Babylonia's ruling elite. And this in turn influenced the upper echelon of the Babylonian government to treat the Jews with more respect and dignity and fairness than we might have expected. And as it invariably happens, the example sent by a nation's government tends to trickle down to its population. From late the 8th century, throughout much of the 7th century BC, Daniel would witness both the rise and the fall of the Babylonian Empire. He would see Persia arise. As the second of the empires, that a divine vision from God informed him would happen in the future. But I wonder if Daniel thought it would happen so quickly. Daniel's dream vision, that enormous, frightful statue, explained that Babylon, which was the head of gold, would be the first of the Gentile empires depicted which would then give way and be followed by Persia the second and then a third one represented by the trunk and thighs of bronze would conquer the second but the advent of the third empire would happen well after Daniel's era with the rise of Greece in the 5th century BC as an ascending regional power the third empire revealed itself What we must note, however, is that we won't find anything about the end of the Persian domination and beginning of the Greek in our Bibles. Because this happened during an era that in Protestantism has come to be known as the silent period. That That is, it happened after the close of what forms the modern Old Testament before the opening of the New Testament. However, there are books that had always been part of the Christian Bible from its earliest formation that did include the development of the Greek Empire. There are 15 of these books, and they're known as the Apocrypha. The so-called silent period isn't real. It was created in the 1800s in the West when the British and American Bible Societies, which were the Protestant branch of the church, decided that those books of the Apocrypha ought not be in Protestant Bibles. The Eastern Church, often called the Orthodox Church, retained the Apocrypha, as did the Catholic Church. Now the transition of the second empire to the third began somewhat invisibly around 440 BC while Ezra and Nehemiah were still living. Greek society emerged from a long period of darkness and irrelevance to become a sought-after way of life and it spread like wildfire around the Mediterranean region. But then a young charismatic Greek leader arose who would be the catalyst to propel the Greek philosophy of life and governing to new heights. In 333 BC Alexander the Great usually called a Greek but who was actually a Macedonian officially defeated the Persians he took their empire away from them and was now the greatest monarch on earth. The Third Empire of Daniel's dream statue had arrived with a bang and within a year Alexander marched his conquering army into Judah Judah, and he took control and soon Judah would be called Judea a Greek word meaning nation of the Jews Alexander would look upon the Jews with favor but only nine years later he was dead and it was of a sudden illness And combined with the work of his enemy to the north, Rome, the world was now Greek. Greek language, Greek society, Greek philosophy. Shomron, Samaria, a lovely, a very fertile area located a mere 40 miles north of Yerushalayim, became home to many of Alexander's military veterans. Samaria. At one time, almost four centuries earlier, it was the capital of Ephraim, Israel, but now it had become transformed into a Greek city that worshipped Zeus as its patron god. But there was a problem, you see, because now it was rubbing shoulders with the preeminent center of traditional Judaism, Jerusalem. And the two cultures hated one another. Well, upon Alexander's death, his enormous empire was divided up and it was distributed among four of his most trusted generals. And of concern to our study is that the region of Syria went to General Seleucus. Egypt went to General Ptolemy the land of Judah, as well as the former territory of Ephraim, Israel, now generally in this time called Samaria, the lie between Syria and Egypt, well, at first it was not specifically assigned to a general. So initially there was this tug-of-war, this political tug-of-war over who was going to control it. Well, it first fell to Seleucus, but within 20 years... It went to Ptolemy, who was the governor of Egypt and whose dynasty governed Judah for almost a hundred years. The Jews coexisted rather peacefully with Egypt during that time. In fact, many vibrant Jewish communities were established in the glorious Egyptian city of Alexandria, named after Alexander the Great. Establishing Alexandria as the third center of Judaism in the world. The other two being Babylon and Jerusalem. And therefore Alexandria became a clear rival to Jerusalem and the religious authorities of Judaism who resided there and they felt entitled to control the Jewish religion from Jerusalem. Well around 250 B.C., an event of immeasurable impact upon Western civilization took place. The Hebrew Bible, the Tanakh, was translated into the everyday language of the people of the Greco-Roman Empire. Greek, there were... A few Greek dialects in use at that time, but the one the Hebrew Bible was translated into, at least it's the one that the oldest manuscripts that have been found use this dialect, was called Koine Greek, Common Spoken Greek. This was the everyday language that just the common folks spoke as opposed to the academic or the poetic Greek dialects used by scholars and the great Greek writers. The enormous and delicate task of translation was undertaken in Alexandria, Egypt, where there was a large Jewish population. And it was set into motion by philadelphus The governor, the Greek governor of Egypt. He was the second to rule in the Ptolemaic dynasty. Now, the story of how this endeavor occurred is contained in the letter of Aristeus of Alexandria. And when Governor Philadelphius was bragging one day that he had collected every worthwhile work of literature in existence for his library, His librarian informed him, well, there is one significant work that he didn't have. That work was the Hebrew Bible. And the high priest of Jerusalem was asked for copies of the Torah, of the prophets, of the writings which formed the Tanakh, the Hebrew Bible written entirely in Hebrew and in its Aramaic offshoot. And to assemble some learned men who could help to translate it. So the high priest sent 72 trusted Jewish scribes along with the Tanakh scrolls down to Alexandria, Egypt. The 72 men were composed, according to legend, of six men from each of the 12 tribes of Israel. Now this, of course, is just a pleasant fiction. In reality, these 72 only symbolically represented uh, represented the 12 tribes as only the members of the tribe of Judah, the Jews were actually still an identifiable Israelite tribe now this is although that the Levites maintained their own separate identities in some cases so did the Benjamites but the world still lumped them all together in one category Jews so accordingly <clears throat> the name given to this Greek translation of the Bible was given in honor of those men who accomplished it. Thus, they called it the Septuagint, a Greek word meaning the 70. Often for the sake of brevity, we'll see the Roman numerals, LXX, which is the Greek number for 70, or Latin number as well, used to signify the Septuagint. Now, the Tanakh, due to the unique Hebrew language, used in writing it, was previously known only to the esoteric Jewish culture. The thing that we must be aware of when studying the Bible is that it is a Hebrew document arising out of a Hebrew culture with all of its writings attributed to the inspiration of the Hebrew God. All language is based on the culture it represents, There are thoughts, there are ideas in each unique culture that don't necessarily exist in other cultures. And the Hebrew culture was entirely defined and established around the Word of God, the Tanakh. Contrary and unique from any other culture that had ever existed. But now, the Hebrew Bible was suddenly available to the whole Greek-speaking pagan world. While this would in time be a welcome aid to those dispersed Jews who could read Greek, but who could no longer read Hebrew, and then later on, for Gentile Christians throughout the Greek-speaking Roman Empire, a carefully guarded door was now thrown wide open And it proved to be a point of entry for pagan foreign influence upon Judaism. Some of it innocent error. Some of it based on Hellenistic, that is Greek, philosophical, cultural agenda. Well, in 198 BC, Syria took control of Judah from Egypt. So now. Judah was governed by a series of Syrian Roman kings. In 175 BC the throne passed to Antiochus IV Epiphanes who was determined to eradicate the peculiar religion of the Jews called Judaism something that was at odds with it, was completely different from all other religions of that day, and to replace it with the common social order at that time, Hellenism. jehovah worship, that is the worship of the God of Israel, adherence to the Torah, even sacrificing in the temple, was terminated by epiphanies under penalty of death for violators. Well, Hellenism you see, was a social and a religious philosophy and embodied all that was Greek. Today we might describe Hellenism by using the terms liberal and progressive. At its heart was an attempt to establish a new tolerant universal world order. Whereas the word Greek would naturally refer to a specific nationality, Greece, Greece, and to a specific language, Hellenism refers to the underlying and also the overriding cultural philosophy that's credited to the Greeks, which is Gnostic in its origin. Hellenistic philosophy believed in multiple gods. They believed in emperor worship, in a freewheeling and self-indulgent lifestyle. had few boundaries on morality and they accepted, for the most part all forms of religion pursuit of pleasure and happiness that was seen as the ultimate goals of life with the search for knowledge intellectualism running a very close second right and wrong were viewed as relative to the current and evolving needs of society. Does all this sound familiar? That was Hellenism. A well-defined system of written and homogeneous laws that applied throughout the empire generally separated government from too much religious influence. Knowledge and literature, that was the source of wisdom. And as the keys to world progress and to peace, what's the difference between Hellenism of the Roman Empire and the societal goals of the modern Western culture? None. They are absolutely one and the same. We are living Hellenism today. Epiphanes wanted a Hellenistic Judah. But this was, of course, incompatible with Judaism. And to accomplish this goal, he had to dismantle the Jewish religious structure. And his first step was to depose the rightful high priest who was Onias III. Now in 173 BC, this this descendant of the house of Sodak... Uh, rather, Zadok, pardon me, Zadok of the tribe of Levi, Onias, the hereditary line of high priests, by the way, that's where he was from, so he was completely legitimate, he was removed. And he was removed in a man, for, and replaced with a man who was not of the required lineage. With Epiphany's hand picked lackey now in place, the corrupted high priesthood of the Jews became more than cooperative. The priesthood had become an office that could quite literally be bought and sold. Until Epiphany's time, civil and religious power over the Jews was in the hands of the priesthood, but then Syrian officials took control of the civil matters, including taxation. Tithes and revenues of the temple were taxed. The common peasants, who made up the bulk of the population, paid one-third of their field crops, half of their tree harvest, as taxes. About 170 BC, a new high priest was named, Joshua, who preferred to go by his Greek name of Jason was completely sold out to modern Hellenistic views. But he didn't want to see Judaism die. He believed with some compromise the two could be compatible. Now note that more and more this has become the viewpoint of the institutional church. In fact, this mindset of compromise with the secular world is the basis of the interfaith movement that seeks to dissolve all lines between all faiths, thereby making any kind of religious experience out to be a good and worthy one. Now of course, just as the world is now actively moving towards a one world government, much of the church in lockstep is moving towards a one world religion, even if it's not recognized at any rate, Jason's desire to retain some semblance of Judaism did not sit particularly well with the cruel and pragmatic epiphanies, so Jason was now replaced by the highest bidder. Menelaus was the proud new owner of the high priest position, the pontificate, as it was called by the Romans. And it was he who fully instituted Epiphany's official policies designed to eradicate all trappings of Judaism. Imagine the Jewish high priest now bent on the destruction of the Jewish religion. Well, many ordinary Jews had by now thoroughly adopted the Hellenistic lifestyle. Greek symbols, Greek gods, even a Greek school called the gymnasium had been built in the holy city of Jerusalem. Greek cities arose all throughout Judah, Samaria, and the Galilee. Jewish businessmen, the wealthy, civic leaders, others who had something to gain by a good relationship with their Syrian governors welcomed the change. Others... The common peasants, their tribal elders, the Levite priests, were not only appalled and disgusted with this turn of events, they were terrified. They were afraid that if they accepted the Syrian governor's order to worship pagan Greek gods, Jehovah would once again punish them with destruction and forced exile for this idolatry. They remembered they saw no avenue other than to resist. The Jewish faithful rioted in the streets of Jerusalem. Judaism was in a shambles. The temple was plundered for its jewels, for its precious metals by the illegitimate high priests. Religious prostitution replaced the now outlawed Levitical altar sacrifices. The temple itself was rededicated to the Greek god Zeus and Jews were commanded on pain of death to partake in heathen Greek worship practices well it's 167 BC about 20 miles outside the walls of Jerusalem Mattathias the elderly patriarch of a family of Levite priests enlisted the help of his five sons to kill a Jew that he observed was about to obey the government edict to sacrifice to Zeus. This instruction had been instituted by King Antiochus Epiphanes who, trying to eradicate Judaism, had also forbidden circumcision. And by the way, you do know this is outlawed in a few countries in Europe now as well as observing the Shabbat. And kosher eating was also forbidden. In a heretofore unrivaled desecration of the Holy Temple, Epiphany sacrificed a pig to the God, god Zeus on the holy altar. He had the pig boiled and he had the broth poured all over the Torah scrolls. The man who Mattathias killed was about to become the first of many Jews to comply with this order to sacrifice to the pagan gods. Mattathias followed up this murder with the killing of a Syrian army officer and some of his troops who were assigned to enforce the order for the Jews to sacrifice to the Greek gods. Now, of course, a pig was an unclean animal to the Jews. It was representative of the pagan Gentile world and everything that was unholy. Jews could not raise pigs. They certainly couldn't eat pigs. And where possible, they avoided even touching pigs. Pigs were specifically outlawed by the Torah as sources of food or sacrifice. Therefore, the magnitude the magnitude of the offense of sacrificing pigs on the holy altar under any circumstance is pretty difficult to overstate. That the high priesthood endorsed it? That was an abomination of the highest order. is the best indication of just how debased the Jewish religious leadership of that time had become well. The killing of that Jewish man by Manatius and his son sparked riots, rebellions, revenge killings started occurring everywhere throughout the land. Hebrews at this time in the history, at this time in history rather, the title Hebrew generally identified those Jews who stayed loyal to traditional Judaism. Well, they were assassinating the Hellenist Jews in other words those who accepted the Greek gods and Epiphany's orders and policies retaliations for that followed and Manatias took his five sons and they fled to the hills Manatias' son Judas the Maccabee Maccabee was a nickname took command of a growing rebel force of Jews and they won battle after battle against the seasoned Syrian forces that were under Roman control because Syria was now a Roman province. And within three years, Judas the Maccabee and the rebels recaptured the Temple Mount, purged the temple of the defiling pagan images. They killed the priests who had participated in such apostasy and they reinstituted traditional Jewish sacrifice on the altar of God. The Jewish celebration of Hanukkah also called the Feast of Dedication and the Feast of Lights was established in remembrance of this rededication of the temple to the God of Israel and of the purging of those pagan sacrifices. It's 164 B.C. And that same year, the hated Antiochus Epiphanes would die in battle. Well, the Jewish rebels continued to recapture territory and liberate the scores of small Jewish villages. The larger cities of the region, all Greek, including the so-called Decapolis, meaning ten cities, had no interest in being rescued. They were thoroughly Greek by choice. Eventually, Hellenistic Jews and Hebrew Jews put aside their differences in faith and they joined forces as they had a common goal of freeing Judah from the harsh hand of Syria, Rome's proxy. But one by one, the sons of Mattathias, including Judas, were killed. Yehonatan, Jonathan, uh, Judas' brother, succeeded him and he was made high priest. And by that time, the appetite for rebellion was diminished as, the size, as was the size of the rebel army. They retreated to the east side of the Yarden, the Jordan River, to regroup. Jonathan now was killed by assassins, and the rebellion continued. And ten years later in Syria, another king, and a long line of short-lived kings, was crowned. This king relented. And he gave Judah more independence. He exempted them from paying tribute. It's 142 BC and Shimon, Simon, the last of Mattathias' sons, was appointed high priest. Well, Simon set about to expunge the Hellenistic views that so dominated the Holy Land and to reestablish a more traditional Judaism. Rome was now an unshakable power and Shimon sent a representative to Rome to sign a mutual protection treaty. Rome recognized Judah as an independent nation, but in alliance with Rome. It was during this time that we first hear of the Parshim, the Pharisees, and the Tzadukim, the Sadducees. These groups resulting from a split in the Jewish religious and political leadership. The Pharisees represented what we might call the more orthodox views. The Sadducees, the more conservative. Now, Shimon, Simon, the high priest, and two of his three sons, well, they were assassinated in an ambush by his power-hungry son-in-law. The surviving son, John Hyrcanus, became the next high priest and also took on the title now of king. However, his position wasn't recognized as legitimate. This concept of the high priest and the kingship being held by one person was dismissed by the Jewish people, especially since this man wasn't of the dynasty of King David. Well, the fortunes of war now swung in the favor of the Jews. So John Hyrcanus led the Jewish army to recapture all of Judah, most of former Ephraim Israel and he also captured the nation of Idumea to the south and he forcibly converted the inhabitants to Judaism First, 30 years later he died his son took over some other nearby territory he also forced those inhabitants to convert to Judaism by the time John Hyrcanus died in 76 B.C., his wife, Salome, became king of Judah. Or rather, queen of Judah. And she ruled a land almost as large as the kingdom that David and Solomon had put together a thousand years earlier. Well, Queen Salome died after nine years on the throne Rome then officially annexed Syria and a civil war broke out in Judah as three different factions sought to ascend to the throne vacated by Salome's death the Romans sided with a faction led by Hyrcanus II because they thought he was more sympathetic to their empire building program he'd be a lot easier to control in true to form, Hyrcanus II cut a deal with the Romans and he opened the gates of Jerusalem to the Roman soldiers. The other factions fought to keep them out. A three-month battle ensued. Thousands of Jews were slaughtered. In 63 BC, Judah became an official Roman province. Rome took all rights to self-rule and kingship away from Judah, never mind that the kings and queens of Judah over that past few years were illegitimate anyway. Never again would the Jews bow down to an Israelite king. The region of Samaria was now separated from Judah, as was the the Galilee. Once again, the Promised Land was divided up, this time into three Roman governing districts. Judea to the south, Galilee to the north, Samaria sandwiched in between the two. Soon, a fourth district would be added to the east of the Jordan River on a former Israelite territory. They would call it Perea. Well, once again... Rebellions, riots, assassinations overtook the land. And in 44 BC, the current Roman emperor, Julius Caesar, so very tolerant actually of the Jews, was murdered and the Roman Empire became unstable. At this point in time, it's estimated that somewhere between 6 and 8 million Jews were living in relative peace in Jewish colonies scattered throughout the Roman Empire that began now at the Atlantic coast of Europe and it stretched all the way to modern-day Iran. Two years after Julius Caesar's death, the Parthians invaded Roman-controlled Syria. Parthia is located in what today is roughly northeastern Iran. And, of course, they were Persian by ethnicity. Thousands of Jews joined with the Parthians in hopes that if they helped them take Syria, the alliance would next set their sights on liberating Judah, away from the Romans. Well, during this time, a very ambitious young man, only 25 years old, named Herod, was appointed the governor of Galilee by the Roman Senate, and his brother was appointed governor of Jerusalem. Very quickly now, this young Herod ingratiated himself to Mark Antony in Rome. The Roman Senate, who was greatly impressed with Herod's loyalty to Rome, elevated his status to king of Judea. The Jews never accepted him as a king. Herod was an Idumean. He was a descendant of Esau. He was not an Israelite. Idumea was a country to the south of Judah that had been conquered by the Maccabees several years earlier. Herod's father had converted to Judaism, which would technically have made Herod a Jew. Now Herod was detested by the Jews. His his deeds of cruelty are the stuff of legends. It was even necessary for him to surround himself with foreign mercenaries as palace guards because otherwise he surely would have been killed in short order by the Jewish people that were near to him. Now the Parthians, as hoped, marched alongside their Jewish comrades into Judah, but not surprisingly, Rome responded very forcefully. And at Herod's request, Mark Antony set a Roman legion towards Judah with Herod at the hill. In no time the Jewish rebels and their Parthian allies were subdued and the land, except for Jerusalem, was back firmly in Rome's and, of course, Herod's hands. Herod then set his sights on Jerusalem and he led the Roman army in a siege of the Holy City. The rebel Jews resisted. The carnage was terrible. After taking Jerusalem, Herod convinced Mark Antony that his own personal guard of foreign mercenaries could could hold the city. He didn't need need any help from the the Roman foreign legion. So, leaving just a handful of Roman soldiers behind, the Roman army marched back to Rome. It was a pretty clever move because now there was no one left to check Herod's ambitions and his bloodlust. We're now at a point only about 30 years before Christ was born. Well, Herod's infamous paranoia, complete lack of conscience, was not manifested exclusively on his Jewish subjects. He even killed several of his own family members, aunts, uncles, cousins, wives, some of his own children, whenever he felt angry or threatened. Yet in some perverse psychology he thought of himself as a good Jew and he held himself up as a fellow Judean. He even upgraded the temple to become more grand than Shlomo's than Solomon's to show his dedication to his Jewish heritage. This seems to have ingratiated him to the Jewish religious leadership of that time including the Sanhedrin and the high priesthood Herod was careful not to defile the temple he didn't want to interfere with the outward functioning of the priests most of whom were completely corrupted in fact the second temple is called by his name to this day Herod's temple the upgrading was so thorough so magnificent that some biblical scholars refer to Herod's temple as the third temple a designation which can be pretty confusing well around the time of Yeshua's birth two distinctly different worlds coexisted in the Holy Lands or better they kind of tolerated one another on the one hand was the Greek Hellenistic oriented culture of the wealthy, the privileged with all of their theaters and house slaves and circuses and tolerance for all religions and God's desire for all things new and exciting On the other hand, there was the older traditional Jewish world with farmers and peasants, fishermen, craftsmen, the lower priests, of course all centering their lives on the temple, on Jewish education, on Torah study. Greek was the language of the privileged and the educated as well as, as, as the huge non-Jewish population at large Greek was also the language of perhaps the bulk of the Jewish population that lived scattered throughout the Roman Empire Aramaic, which is a cousin language of Hebrew that was the language of the, uh, the Jewish commoners who lived in the Holy Land. It was what Jesus undoubtedly spoke, along with Hebrew. Many of both social classes also spoke Hebrew. Written ancient Hebrew was now practiced only by a handful of learned priests and rabbis and scribes. The common Jewish folk were generally able to write in Aramaic, some of them in Greek. Now, it's very key for us to come to grips with the realities of Jewish life and the years leading up to and during the years of Christ's earthly ministry at least if we're going to understand the Jewish authors of the New Testament writings see Jewish life centered mostly on Jerusalem itself centered on Herod's temple synagogues lived side by side with the temple some ways competed with the temple because Much worship and ceremony and leadership that was formerly reserved as a temple activity now took place at the synagogue. The temple was a glorious place. It was admired by foreigner and citizen alike. I mean, what a diverse crowd wandered around its grounds. Hellenist Jews and the pious Jews scattered Jewish people Pilgrims that would come from Europe and Asia and Africa. Galileans, regarded as filthy-mouthed and and hot-tempered peasants. Samaritans, well, they were considered traitors to Israel and to Judaism. Local laborers and aristocrats, white-robed priests, temple officials, intense, scowling, domineering Pharisees scholarly, proper, aloof Sadducees always, always the myriads of curious Gentiles the temple breathtaking in its magnificence was a place of worship and sacrifice and study and social gathering it faced eastward it was made of, of white variegated marble it rose some 150 feet from its base It was decorated with pure gold. And the Jewish-Roman historian Josephus described its appearance from afar as that of a snow-capped mountain. And since the days of their exile in Babylon, study and knowledge of the law, the Torah, that had become the preeminent activity of the pious Jews. The large court that sat just outside the temple was a place where commoners could go to hear the smaller Sanhedrin, the lower religious court, answer doctrinal questions if they felt the inquiries were deserving of their valuable time. In the outermost temple court, where the Gentiles could gather, in fact it was called the Court of the Gentiles, sat the ancient equivalent of Thomas Cook foreign exchange booths. For a commission, much of which was given to the high priest as rent for the space, the money changers would exchange temple currency, in other words, coins that were minted by the temple staff, for any other kind. Generally speaking, only animals purchased at the temple were considered suitable for sacrifice, kind of another convenient way for the high priest to make a little more profit. And these could only be purchased with coins that had been minted by the temple. Pretty good racket he had going on here. Well, the wealthy and the learned, they kind of strolled through the streets of Jerusalem looking down their noses at these masses of dirty, ignorant peasants that seemed to their cultured view as little better than beasts of burden and even a bother at that. Now the noisy beggars, some disfigured by disease, others who were intentionally made lame in childhood by their families so they could attract more pity, hopefully therefore more charity, they lay wherever they could find a spot to hold out those shriveled hands for alms. The growing disparity now between the rich and the poor created this exploding population of beggars. And it led to a very peculiar method of civil control over them by the authorities. Beggars, in Christ's day, were required to be licensed. Laziness, you see, wasn't tolerated. So they first had to prove that their disability was real and it was severe enough to warrant begging. Well, if there was, they were approved, they were given a special cloak of a certain design and color that was the visible proof of government authorization to publicly beg. Those without that identifying cloak were arrested and they were removed from the city. Losing one's cloak to a thief or to another beggar or by accident was tantamount to losing one's only source of livelihood. Proud rabbis, though, they would pass through the holy city, walking the streets with their flocks of disciples close behind like a bunch of little ducklings. They they ignored, of course, those beggars' cries for coins. The priests of high office, along with their courts, would strut unimpeded because the crowds would just part like the Red Sea to let them by. And neither priests nor rabbis were particularly interested in such mundane matters as charity for the poverty-stricken or the disabled. Now it was the rabbis who dominated the synagogues. Their status had become so elevated that their words could and did begin to replace God's words. It was said of them, that had a rabbi declared day, night, and night, day, it was so. I spent some time studying the Talmud and the Mishnah, ancient rabbinical commentary in Jewish law. I can tell you from personally reading it, several of the rabbis fancied themselves as having direct conversation with God. In fact, There is more than one Talmudic tractate that literally describes God coming to the rabbis to beseech them for their wise advice. They were revered and they were protected at all costs. This was tradition at its worst. And that is what Judaism had become. Yeshua would openly and loudly criticize these man-made traditions that now formed the basis for Judaism, and it had much to do with those religious authorities wanting to kill him. Well, Jerusalem was now about a 300-acre walled city. The inhabitants living inside the city walls numbered about a quarter of a million Many local residents lived outside its walls, outnumbering by far those who lived within. And there were several suburbs just a donkey ride away. They came into the city only for temple activities and to buy and trade at the myriad of open market tables. One could buy almost anything from anywhere in Jerusalem. Goods from India, Italy, Greece, Europe, even China. Luxury items were enormously expensive, but everyday items were pretty reasonable. Corn, fruit, wine, olives, and oil, quite cheap actually. Unlike in the outlying smaller villages, the markets in Jerusalem were open all day, every day. Now on the surface, in Christ's time, Yerushalayim was the London of its day. It was international, it was diverse, it was tolerant, it was prosperous, it was the center of learning. But below that surface, the common peasant Jews were deeply offended. They were felt oppressed. They were barely able to hide their disdain for this corrupt, illegitimate priesthood. These unclean heathens that wandered around their streets and controlled their lives defiled everything they touched. There were many synagogues in and then all around Jerusalem because by now the Jews had broken up into many different sects. Although there were four that are the best documented. We don't need a vivid imagination to grasp the concept of Judaism being comprised of many sects each dedicated to its own synagogue because it was then with Judaism as exactly it is today with Christianity only we just use different terms the modern church system is modeled after the Jewish synagogue system with common prayers and music and preaching and Bible reading and, and, and order of service. The modern Christian would say, well, we're just various denominations. It current counts something around 3,000 of them. And we attend different churches. In reality, however, we're just a body divided by socioeconomic status, race, manner of dress, Dedication to certain time-honored traditions and more often than not the most minute differences in detail of, of scriptural representations. If, simply, if we simply equate synagogue with church and sect with denomination, we're going to have a pretty clear picture of religious structure and controversies in Jesus' time. Well, next week, we will look a little bit more closely at some of these various sex denominations that comprised mainstream Judaism and Christ's day.